We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. I want to welcome you in to uh, the church service this morning at Fellowship Bible Church. Glad that you're all here. Addie, it's good to see you here today. Thank you for coming. Yes. And the Collins, the whole clan is here Yay, somebody says, that's good. We're so happy that you're able to be back after battling with that awful virus. Our scripture reading is in the Proverbs again today. If you'd turn there to the 24th chapter of the Book of Wisdom, Proverbs 24. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and a scoffer, I'm sorry, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does, he, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? My son, eat honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. I make a comment at this point just to remind us that the Lord Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to love our enemies. And although we might be happy when they fall, um, we have to be extraordinarily cautious about that, that it's the right kind of satisfaction. Uh, We're not rejoicing when people fall into calamity, into death, into destruction, because that's not good for them. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, for example. Remember that? Yeah, neither should we. 
because we know that their end is so terrible. Verse 19, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. I think a lot of modern stuff today, politics and education and all that, is all this given to change kind of idea. That'd be interesting to, to study that out a little bit further. Verse uh, 23, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality and judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Look, if you want God's blessing, you don't justify the wicked. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips, verse 26 says, and then 27, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? Do not say to, do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Uh, Take heed to those words. Some of us have that tendency as humans. I know I'm speaking to a group here where somebody has this challenge. You have the challenge of laziness and you've Fold the hands and rest a little bit, and then you do the same thing the next day, and you do the same thing the next day, and guess what happens? Nothing gets done. In fact, to say it that way is kind of odd. Nothing gets done. What does that mean? That's a passive, isn't it? Nothing, like things do themselves? No, nothing gets done means you haven't done anything. It's not the thing's fault that you didn't do it. It's your fault that you didn't do it. Okay, so don't fold the hands And uh, God has made us to be diligent and to work. And uh, one of the things that God is displeased with is laziness. So look around and see if you have the evidences of laziness around you and uh, correct those in any way in which you can. I want to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to the fourth chapter in the book of Beginnings, the fourth chapter in the book of Genesis, when we're going to see... Uh, the beginning of two things, two important things, uh, kinds of things in the world, and I want to share a little bit about those with you today. I hope it will be helpful to you. There are some pitfalls that we can avoid, some areas where I've tried to be careful in how I've explained things so that I won't uh, mislead or uh, you know, cause you to go astray in your thinking or your concerns, but you have to get through the whole thing. So if you read one sentence and it doesn't quite seem right, hang on till the next one and let's see what, uh, what happens here. Once sin entered the world, indeed death came through sin. Romans 5 tells us that the 
Uh, as I've said many times, you might want to chafe at that truth, but every time you drive by a cemetery, you have proof upon proof upon proof and every marker in that cemetery that death came through sin. And it is uh, just the, the way that things are. Spiritual death obviously came immediately, that separation from God where in Isaiah 59 it says that your sins have separated you or put up a wall of separation between you and your God. Uh, and then eventually physical death also for Adam and Eve and all of their progeny. But before that physical death occurred, another kind of physical death came into the world, and that is through murder. And that's what we're going to see here. The first person to physically die was a God-fearing man named Abel, murdered in his early adulthood, I believe, by, of course, we know by his brother Cain. I can't say his age for sure, but that's what it seems like. In 2020, according to the Centers for Disease Control, there were over 24,000 homicides in the United States. That is 50 to 80 per day, depending on the day. You can do the math to find the average. That was a 30% increase over the previous year. The next year after 2020 was in 2021, the number increased again by 6%. That's in the United States. And multiply that by across the world. There may be you know, more or less homicides per 100,000 people in other places, but you have yourself a major problem, starting with this in the book of Genesis. Besides that, there were 1.2 million emergency room visits for assault in the United States during that time. That is a lot of violence. The earth was filled with violence. God saw that the intents of man's heart were only evil continually, and that's the kind of age in which we live. We need to make ourselves realize that it is only by the extreme long-suffering of God that we are not just zapped into, you know, ashes. The background in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, that speaks of marital intimacy, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Adam and Eve had their first two children. It doesn't actually uh, tell us absolutely their first two, but we believe that's the case. And furthermore, we know that they must have had other children because we've got marriages going on and, and grandchildren coming and so on and so on. So the distance of time also between the two births is not specified. Some have suggested, well, maybe uh, Cain and Abel were twins. I doubt that is the case myself. Um, Moses writing this, remember Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and this would be thousands of years after these events occurred, at least a couple thousand years. And so I would think you know, they would recognize that twins were a little bit abnormal, but who's to say what normal was when the first baby was born? Maybe they just thought, well, they come in pairs. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? that? Can you imagine twins being the normal case? Ladies, no. No, you can't. That would be tough. Well, uh, so normal childbirth wasn't yet defined, of course, but uh, we, we know what it is now. Um, but uh, it seems that he would have mentioned if they were twins, like he did elsewhere in the scriptures, they mentioned twins. 
Now there's a, a question here about the, the translation of, of, Ad, of, sorry, of Eve's exclamation here in verse 2, um, or verse 1 actually, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And you, you wonder like, and some interpreters have said, uh, well, maybe she says, I've gotten a man, the Lord. Okay, I hear some people affirming that, but don't be discouraged when I take uh, you down a little bit here. <laughs> um, the interpreter might suggest that Eve thought that she had bore the promised seed who would redeem them from sin. But in fact, she had not done so. Yes? Who was it that she said this of? Cain was not a redeemer figure in the Bible, unfortunately. It would have been nice had that been the case. But Cain proved himself to be far from a redeemer. Therefore, it seems the notion that she thought she had borne the redeemer should be discarded uh, as the meaning that God intends for us to grasp here in the text and certainly also Moses and Eve. But I take it that she realizes that she brought forth a man with the help of the Lord, just like God created a man. Now, she understands, we all understand, she didn't make a man like God made a man. But, you know, this was the first human birth. And she has the baby, and she sees the baby as physically like her husband. And she says, this is amazing that God has brought something out of my body, which is a small reproduction of a man. God made, using me, I made a man. Now, just stop and think about that. When you think about childbirth, we can kind of just, well, you know, we've known. We, we were born, and everybody's been born, and we see births, and we visit in the hospital, and we rejoice with people who have babies, and we'll have some more here in the next few months in the church, and wonderful. But just think about what that is. God makes new people out of two little cells. And you, get, you say, well, God's made a woman and he's made a man. Like, man, it boggles your mind to think about. And you think about it from the perspective of Adam and Eve. This has never happened before in world history. How did, I mean, how do you go through, you know, there was no classes for them and no, you know, what, Lamaze and all that sort of stuff to figure out what to do here and what is it, what's, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know, but uh, anyway, very interesting that they had that experience. So she's making an exclamation here. What an amazing situation. Now, of course, they had in their mind that God was going to, through her seed, bring some kind of redemption. So they've always got to have this, you know, they weren't told when, uh, which child or whatever. And we're going to find out that it was later on that, that the godly line of, of the, through Adam and Eve came, but... Very interesting. Now, Eve bore another child, and his name was Abel. Interestingly, Abel's name... Now, listen, I don't get into all this kind of name stuff, like every name has to have a meaning, and you find you know, humongous theological truths in the name. They gave, they gave him this name, okay? That's what his name was. It was Abel. But... It's interesting to me that the name Abel is related to the word that is used in Ecclesiastes for uh, vanity, hevel, 
of breath, vapor. And indeed, his life was a vapor, wasn't it? James chapter 4, verse 14, your life is a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it goes away. Well, that's Abel's name. Just to remind you that life is short. You know, one of our dear brothers lost his sister. Her life was too short. We say too short. God knows the length of each person's life. But he appeared for a short time and then vanished away. The scriptural teaching in James is what gives that name significance, not that he has that name. In other words, we've got to get the right order there. But anyway, the text tells us that Abel kept sheep and Cain was a dirt farmer. There's no theological importance to that. They, they had their specialties. They uh, both, uh, both had good lines of work. They were honest labor. They had to be done. It's interesting to me that they begin to specialize already. They're, you know, Nobody's a master of everything. So somebody specialized in the sheep, somebody specialized in the vegetables, and I bet you they began to trade back and forth right away, exchange goods so that the one who knew more about the vegetables and produced more of them could get some sheep and, and the vegetables could change hands and so on. So some kind of uh, trade arrangement obviously sprung up quickly that they would have exchanged the fruits of their labors. Now, in chapter 4, verse 3, it says, in the process of time, so we're kind of you know, glossing over a whole bunch of time in their lives. It would be interesting to know what that was like, but we don't. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the young men bring offerings to the Lord. Why did they do that? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but we well understand that they must have been told by their parents, this is what you do. You bring an offering to the Lord. They have understood that God deserves expressions of gratitude. Where did that stuff come from that they had? Where did those sheep come from? The day before their parents were made, God made those sheep. And the day of their, actually, of their making, that God made uh, more cattle and animals and things. He made the plants, actually, before. And all that, everything they had was from God. So they would express gratitude. And, and uh, perhaps the parents taught them about confession of sin as well. And, and this, this was done properly with an accompanying sacrifice. So... I think they would have explained to them animal sacrifice. They had experienced that when God killed some animals to make skins for them, skins to cover their shameful, uh, shamefulness and their uh, unclothed state. Um, you know, even if it seems to us like, boy, I don't see that. Um, there's a lot more going on here than what is written. I mean, these parents are raising these kids, and what do you think they're telling them about God? Nothing. No, I'm sure they're telling him we had perfect fellowship with God in the garden. We blew that. We had, you know, we ate of the tree we weren't supposed to. We used to live in, the, in this place called the Garden of Eden. Perfect. We got expelled out of there. And all of, I mean, I'm sure they must have said. Now, maybe they waited until they were a little older and they were, I don't know. I mean, parents were embarrassed about it, and didn't want to say anything to their kids. And you know how that all is, and they got to figure all that stuff out. 
We simply don't know what was revealed to them because it was not all written down. But obviously, some things were told them that we don't know about. Their parents had fellowshiped with, some God, with, some, with God for some days after their creation and marriage, and their kids must have known something about that. Now, Cain brought fruits or vegetables as his offering. Abel brought the firstborn of the sheep. And the text tells us that God respected Abel and his offering. I want you to notice both things, Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. It was not just a matter of the offerings being proper or improper or acceptable or unacceptable. It was the person associated with the offering as well. So Cain became very angry about this. If you look at verse number uh, 5, Cain was very angry. Now this, to me, is way out of place. I hope it is to you as well. First of all, I shouldn't have been angry in the first, at all, but very angry at God, whose instruction he knew about animal sacrifice. He must have. And he went and offered something else. It's, it's like, you know, people today, they do stuff that they, that is obviously wrong. They don't know that they know that God doesn't want them to do, and then they get mad at God for the results. Don't do that. That's stupid. Okay, you can't get mad when you disobey God, and then you get the consequences of that disobedience. Why was he angry? Well, I think it's fairly easy to understand. He didn't get his way. He thought he should be able to offer what he wanted to offer. Um. hasty reader here might think, well, the problem is with God. I mean, shouldn't God be thankful for that offering that Cain offered him? Why should he judge if someone brings something different as an offering? Aren't we all different? Don't we get to offer to God what we want to offer to him? We can come to him on our terms? Well, that's foolish talk for a couple of reasons. First of all, what we mentioned that God must have specified to these folks what to do. And second of all, if you turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews, you'll see the divinely breathed answer to the inquiry why, about why this was not good. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So the Bible says that by faith he offered to God the more excellent sacrifice. So there's the key. He offered the proper sacrifice with faith in God. That's Hebrews 11 and verse 4. Again, that is the divine commentary on this. Um, through which this offering of by faith that he, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. How do you get righteous before God? You believe in Christ. You believe in him in the Old Testament language. You believed, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So the, there are two aspects of the situation. There's the by faith aspect and there's the better offering aspect. And although some try to emphasize one or the other, I think we have to keep our focus on both. You can offer a conforming offering without faith. 
and it will not be right. You can also offer a bad offering with what you think is faith, and that will not be right either. People of Israel did this all the time. They offered a sick or lame animal, and they thought that God should accept that, or they made an offering even of a good animal, but they didn't do it in faith, and God was sick and tired of that kind of religious behavior. You have to offer the right stuff in the right way, and Abel did that. Cain did not. By this, then, it appears that an animal sacrifice was required, not just whatever the offerer decided to give, and it's certain that faith was required. Otherwise, it was an empty religious exercise. If you come to church without faith, without interest in the Word of God, without your heart in it, then you can check the box, but God didn't check the box because it didn't count for anything. So please, don't do that to God. So I have a little typo, I think, in the uh, heading here of number three, God's advice for Cain. God asked Cain why he was so angry and why his countenance had fallen. That's in verse number six. And then seven, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So God advised Cain to do well. If he did, he'd be accepted. In other words, you can correct this problem. Thankful to God's grace, aren't you? When you mess up, that you can get back on the right track, confess your sin, repent, turn to God, and he'll get you back on the straight and narrow path. He didn't do well before, but God is counseling him to do so now. And that would include offering the next time the proper sacrifice and obedient faith. God further advised him, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. That's a picturesque little thing, isn't it? Think about your front door. You know, and I kind of think, man, I'd like to have a door sweep under that door, make sure there's no gap for the sin to get in underneath it, you know, just kind of penetrate into my house and thinking of it that way. It's really a metaphor here, not that it's at his literal front door of his house, but it's at the front door of his life. And he has to choose to rule over it, otherwise it will rule him. He who commits sin is the slave of sin. If you do not rule over sin, the implications are that the consequences will be very bad. So think about a couple principles that arise from this Verse here, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It wants to overtake you. It's personified here, and it sort of is, isn't it? It's personified in our nature. It becomes personalized by us because we have it in our tendency to sin. Every step that you further take into sin is a step further into slavery to it. You get deeper and deeper and deeper. The more you do wrong, the more the wrong rules over your own life. It's, it's sad to see people have gone down that path and they're, you know, they're there, they might not realize where they are, how far they are, and somebody from the outside is looking and saying, man, they're in really bad. They don't recognize it because they've become enslaved and addicted to it or whatever. It can take you to an end that you did not imagine was possible. You think Cain thought started out 
giving the wrong offering, thinking that he was going to end up being the first murderer, to have that ignominy on him, that shame, that, that terrible reputation. Just like Cain, any of us, if we let sin rule over us, can go all the way to the end of its terrible course. You must take charge. I'm talking to you now, all of us. You, we, must take charge and say, no, I am not going to go that route. I am not going to allow sin to rule over me. I'm kicking it out by God's grace. Change your mind. Say enough is enough and repent. Because you're a fallen person and need forgiveness, appeal to Jesus to save you. God will help you, and by and by, he will stop that sin that besets you. Whatever, whatever it is, external, some internal lust, God will help you with that. But you've got to come to a point where you realize, this is sick. And I don't mean awesome by that. I mean it's sick. It's bad. It's terrible. It's dark. It's deadly. It's dangerous. It's the fruit of those things, Paul said, is death not righteousness. Well, we know how Cain responded. He responded the wrong way. He did not listen to God's advice. Bad idea. Whenever God gives you advice, how does he do that in the Bible? Whenever he gives you advice, best listen. You don't listen, nothing good is going to come of it. Nothing good is going to come of it at all. And here, Not only nothing good came of it, something terribly evil came from it. So it says in verses 8 and 9, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. doesn't give us any detail here. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The account is simple, it's unembellished. The human author Moses knew uh, either directly from God or through history passed down orally what happened. He doesn't know that if he stoned him or if he hit him with a a, a log or something like that or beat him up with his hands, choked him, whatever. We don't have any idea. It doesn't matter. We're not told if he buried the body in the ground or just left it there to rot. It's nonsensical, though, when you think about it. Why would Cain take out his anger against God on his brother? Well, he couldn't beat God up, I guess, so he took out his anger on somebody else. His brother did not wrong him. His brother just did what God asked him to do. His logic may be something like, you know, his brother, my brother made me look bad, so if I get rid of my brother, that'll fix everything. I won't look as bad. Oh, what logic that is. Sin was at the door and it had burst through the door and overtaken Cain and turned him into a monster. His anger. You know, any, any wonder why the Lord Jesus said, if you're angry at your brother, it's like you've murdered? It's the same. That's what happened here. God came to Cain and asked about Abel. Of course, God didn't need to know anything. He already knew everything. This is like the question that God asks in chapter 3. Remember in verse number 9, he comes to the garden, and the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? 
God already knew exactly where Adam was and Eve and exactly what tree they were behind and all that. He knew everything, but he's calling to them to get them to speak. And here he is asking Cain, what happened? What happened? Where, where is he? Cain answered God insolently, rudely, without respect, arrogantly. I want you to remember the example of his parents. God asked them what happened. And although we recognize that they blamed Adam, Eve, Eve the serpent, they both did say, I ate. It would have been far better for Cain to say, I killed Abel. But he didn't. What did he say? Um, Let's see, verse number uh, 9. I do not know. Liar. He knew. He lied. Then he showed a callous disregard for human life when he said, Am I my brother's keeper? Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a keeper of no one. He didn't care. Cain was not a keeper of his brother, while Abel was the keeper of the sheep. Am I my brother's keeper? What a callous disregard. I don't care about him. So Cain now has offered an unacceptable sacrifice. He's become angry at God. He's not repented of sin. He did not, chose, did not choose to follow righteousness. Instead, he killed his brother. Now he's lied. He showed a callous disregard. He was given over to his own self-centeredness. Doesn't sound like old uh, Cain is on the right track here, does it? One wrong thing after another. So God pours out judgment upon him, chapter 4, verse 10. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God heard the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. Life was extinguished there, and it's pictured as reaching out to God from the earth. Remember, from dust to dust, you came out of the earth, you go back to the earth. Well, uh, Abel's blood uh, you know, probably actually did bleed uh, because of this attack. And his blood was sinking into the earth from whence it came. The death was unnatural. It was premature. God knew about it already because of his omniscience. But he, in a sense, again, personifies here, personifies that blood and saying it's crying out from the ground. It's asking for justice to be done. It's demanding that justice be done. That's what, when you get that picture in your mind, and see how God cares for his creation, then you get a different view altogether of how 24,500 murders in the United States looks to heaven. Or the deaths of babies killed in the womb, we keep bringing that up. Planned Parenthood responsible for more deaths last year than COVID. The blood of the innocents is crying out to the living God and its voice is getting louder and louder and louder. And at some point, God will 
say, I hear your cries. I hear your cries. God cursed Cain even more than the original curse. If you look at verse number 11, so now he says, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So it's like Cain uh, poisoned the earth for himself by this blood. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So God cursed him, particularly Cain, not every human being, but particularly him. He would find great difficulty in raising food from his labor. It seems like a a supernatural kind of punishment, but such a life sentence was fitting for one who committed murder. Of course, there were no prisons then. There was no, God didn't implement yet the death penalty. There was no human government. But later on, God would require the death of the murderer as a punishment that was commensurate with the crime of sufficient gravity to match that crime. That's Genesis 9-6. We'll get there later. Cain would have to turn to other means to find nourishment. Now, Cain's going to complain, you know, like, this is so terrible, God, too much for me. Yeah, well, what about your brother? He's not even alive and you're complaining about your life sentence? God was gracious to Cain. He could have wiped him out right then and there in great pain and suffering, sent him to eternal punishment. Perhaps he has a nomadic lifestyle now where he scratches together an existence in any way that he's able to survive. Again, I mentioned Cain complained. Verse number uh, 13, God, or Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Again, focusing on himself selfishly. Yes, Cain, there are consequences for your sins. God warned you that sin lies at the door, but you did not listen. Now you're getting it. Now you bear the pain of disobedience. And he became worried that people who find, find him wandering on the earth as a nomad would uh, kill him because he was driven away from God and kind of brought to exposure to others. Well, that's what sin does. It puts you out there in the exposed place. You're not in the protection, under the protection of God anymore. So God made a concession in the situation by putting a special mark or a sign on Cain's body, visible somehow, some form or fashion. Um, it says... Uh, the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. I don't know exactly all about that mark, uh, but anyone who killed Cain would be avenged in a far worse way. And so what we have then is a deterrent to someone else taking judgment on Cain and, then, and thus increasing, massively increasing the amount of crime and murder on the earth. You've got to have a deterrent factor, right? Otherwise, people are just going to run wild. Certain people are so cold-hearted, and killing is so easy to accomplish with the tools that are available today that some people will just run rampant and do that and not care. Now, hang in there. We still have a couple things to do here this morning. We look at the descendants of Cain in verses 16 to 24. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, 
This is east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. Uh, she, so Cain had to have married one of his sisters, <clears throat> excuse me, or perhaps a niece, but most people would suggest a sister. And that was perfectly fine with the genetic composition of the human race at that time. It doesn't work today. It's outlawed. It was outlawed actually in the uh, Jewish law back in Exodus. Um, and so uh, close marriage, close family relations could not marry. And God had great wisdom in that. And uh, so they had a son named Enoch. Now, this is not the same Enoch that you know from later on in the book. Okay, this is another guy. And he built a city and called it the name of the city, the same as the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Okay, so we have within just a few generations here, uh, you know, the bronze and iron age coming about. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So the family line, we read that, seven generations ending at a man who disobediently took two wives and then had boys, Jabal and, and Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, and uh, Naamah, or Nema, as you might say. The text mentions they took up specialized trades, um, and so society was beginning to develop, and, and whether by accident or intentional, was Im- implementing the dominion mandate to a limited extent that was now possible because of sin. Sadly, it tells us that Lamech was a murderer as well for some little offense against him, it seems, perhaps self-defense, but his little song here seems out of place for a person who was unwillingly thrust into a situation where self-defense became necessary. If you've ever kind of studied self-defensive situations, the people who are thrust into those and have to do them are not going around singing songs about them. It's terrible to have to defend yourself and even to the point of killing an attacker or harming an attacker. It's just, you know, the PTSD from that, the bad feelings, especially for people like us Christians who don't want to harm a thing. This is not Lamech's position. He was happy about this. He was singing a little ditty here about how he did this. And so at once the the society is moving in this direction of you know, branching out and doing different things, but at the same time it's devolving into further and further sin, and and thus we get to the point that we are today. More family tree stuff here in Genesis 4, 25 and 26. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And then verse 26, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
Second-born Abel was dead. Firstborn Cain was not worthy of firstborn status anymore. I mean, can you imagine Adam and you know uh, writing him into the will? I mean, no, I wouldn't think so. He's out. Um, so now, and probably there are certainly other brothers and sisters, no doubt, but God gave Adam and Eve yet another son and named him Seth. That's a long period of childbearing, by the way, but Adam and Eve had very long lives and were very fertile and could do that. Adam named the boy, holding in mind that God had given him another seed instead of Abel. This is the one through whom the promised seed actually, in fact, would come. But he wasn't that seed. He was just, you know, one of the long line. Seth had a son, Enosh. And now that sin had become so ingrained and had such terrible consequences, perhaps our first parents began to to change how they raised their kids. You know, the firstborn always gets the short end of the stick because parents are a little bit clueless when they first have kids. By the time they have number three, four, five, and six, and maybe they have them a little later on, they, you know, that's why, you know, the baby in the family always gets treated with the soft gloves, right? Because the parents have, have softened and they've learned a little bit more about how to be gracious maybe and whatever. Um, but in any case... Can you imagine now, I'm going to ask you to imagine another aspect of the situation with the parents, but think about, they're like Cain and Abel. Man, we, um, we had a real problem. We need to sternly warn our kids about this matter of sin and tell them that it's at the door and it will take over if you are not careful. And so parenting has become more dangerous and difficult They find it's crucial to discipline children away from anger and selfishness like that which drove Cain to become a murderer. And then people began to call on the name of the Lord, perhaps taught by Adam and Eve and and, uh, Seth and Enosh. True religion started at this point. I've overlooked that before, but it says it here. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That's what we call true religion. So not only did murder begin in chapter 4, but people's interaction with God and the care for that and raising children to do that. You know, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Isaac called on the name of the Lord. Elijah, at the uh, contest with the prophets of Baal, called on the name of the Lord. He said, I'll call on the name of the Lord and he'll burn up the sacrifice. You call on your God and see what he does. Elijah... We said, Naaman, the Syrian, he thought Elisha is just going to call on the name of the Lord and boom, he's going to be healed from his leprosy. Now, that didn't happen that way, but that's what he thought would happen. Zechariah chapter 3 says God's going to give a pure speech to the peoples of the earth and they will call on the name of the Lord. The Corinthians and other Christians of the first century, the Bible says, called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Joel 2 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter preached that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and there he's referring to Jesus. Paul himself on the road to Damascus testifies he called on the name of the Lord when Ananias came to him, and the Bible says you too can call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved saved. And verse 13 of Romans 10. So 
If nothing else gets across today to you, perhaps that will. The last part of verse, chapter 4, verse 26, men began to call on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord? In your life, you need to call on the name of the Lord. You're no better than Cain or Adam or Abel or Seth or Enosh. You need to call on the name of the Lord to save your soul. I've done that. I continue to do that. You know, once somebody calls on the name of the Lord, they don't stop calling on the name of the Lord, do they? All the time, God, please help deliver me from this wretched condition that I'm in in my heart and deliver those around me that are in that wretched condition. And you call on the name of the Lord increasingly so. Finally, I want to just talk about the grief this morning of a parent. It's easy to read through this like you turn on you know, the local news, and you hear about all the murder and mayhem happening out there, and it's just like, oh, it's just another day in southeast Michigan, you know. What's new? But I want you to think about this from mom and dad's perspective. Eve and Adam had lost their second son to murder. Even worse, their first son was the murderer. What went wrong with him? They must have asked. Eve turns to her husband and he turns to, what did we do? Why did he turn out so badly? Had we raised him poorly? Why was he so recalcitrant, so angry, so selfish? Even worse, they would have had survivor's guilt. You know that, right? Why was it Abel instead of us? And finally, here's the last element of this, which is going to get me into possibly a little trouble, but hang on, I don't think it will. Think of the guilt that they would have because they were the first human beings, the ones who were directly responsible for bringing sin into the world. Their choice at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil years earlier had a direct correlation now to their sinful children and the death of one of them and the other one becoming a murderer. Indeed, this is beyond survivor's guilt, but their own real guilt that they are, in a sense, the cause of the whole mess. We plunged our family into this situation, and we have made a disaster. They brought sin into the world themselves, and they brought children into the world in this condition. Now still, 100%, Cain was entirely responsible for his actions, okay? We don't go back and say, my parents made me do it kind of thing. That's not the case. But note well, here's the caveat to this. This idea cannot legitimately be directly transferred or applied to you if you are a parent who who has similar guilt feelings to Adam and Eve. You've had a, a child go astray. You've lost a child all of those things. Parents today do not have the same kind of direct connection as Adam and Eve when it comes to bringing sin into their, in their family's life. The difference is this. Adam and Eve started out in a perfect condition and then brought sinners into the world. Today's parents, well, we started out as sinners already. We're already part of the mess created by our first parents. And then add to that all of the sinful influences you know, the social media, the general media, the drugs, the temptations, the bad influences, the school, the poor education or outright miseducation, the the, the things that connect parent 
Guilt because of a child's sin is not nearly so direct today as it was for Adam and Eve. Of course, though, parents do have an influence on their offspring. While the guilt connection is not the same as Adam and Eve's connection, it is not entirely absent either. A multitude of factors have to be considered in each individual case. But none of us started out perfect in a perfect garden with perfect fellowship with God and then blew it. We have a more remote type of connection that has to be considered as we think of our own blameworthiness in the tragedies that may be God's assigned portion for us. Just pause there for a second. Tragedies befall in your life? Guess who permitted it and assigned it for you to entrust to you? God did. God did. You cannot look at your child's, uh, say, accident or straying as if it's entirely your fault. The young person has responsibility as well. Sometimes there's simply nothing that can be humanly done to fix a child's sinful behavior. Only God through Christ can do that. Sometimes God does work that way. Sometimes God takes this Christian young person out of life chastens them, disciplines them by taking them to heaven. How should we respond when there's such tragedy in our, in our life? Our main response, I think, we could say is this, quiet trust in the sovereign God. Quiet trust in the sovereign God. He rules over everything in a way that is beyond our comprehension. He's no, he knows what he's doing. He's permitted everything. Do not overlook that basic truth as you are looking for answers in your pain. God, in his sovereignty, decided this was how it was going to be. And we know that he works even bad things together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Genesis tells us about the beginning of everything, even murder. But in this passage, there's also a hopeful note as people begin to call on God to save them. That's really the only hope of mankind. Not politics, not science, not education, not medicine, not secular counseling. You must call and continue to call on the name of the Lord. And I advise you to do that before sin leaps upon you and takes over your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to look at the Word and to learn from the experiences of others, to learn from the teaching that is so clear here in the Word of God, and I pray, Lord, that each of us will recognize that sin is that ever-present enemy that does want to take over. And I pray that we will call on the name of the Lord to be delivered from it. We saw Cain did not do that. Help us to do it so that we will not be overtaken in any sin. In Jesus' name, amen.